Listen to another episode of Into the Looking Glass Darkly with your host, Dave Oscuro. As you may know, I am unapologetically a fan of professional wrestling. Certainly, even the most casual of fans would know the names of Hulk Hogan or Stone Cold Steve Austin. Absolutely, the biggest movie star in the world, The Rock, got his start in professional wrestling, as well as, and I must uh, give him his flowers, Dave Batista, who's turned into quite a formidable actor in his own right, also got his start in wrestling. Wrestling is one of those forms of entertainment that at various points in history has been massively popular. And yet, despite its popularity over time, I still feel like it's one of those forms of entertainment that is wildly misunderstood and in fact, perhaps not even understood at all. I often hear professional wrestling called things such as lowbrow entertainment or uh, male soap opera, and I think that's incredibly unfair. What better way to educate ourselves so that we have an informed opinion about this than to bring in an expert to speak about it and to speak about what their perspective of wrestling is, what they've put into the industry, what they hope to see from the industry, and the art of telling a story through physical combat, even if it's scripted. I'm speaking of our host today, none other than someone whom I consider not only one of the best to have ever done it, but a forebearer of wrestling in the modern age, and that is Nigel McGuinness. Nigel came to prominence in the very influential promotion of Ring of Honor, having been its longest-running pure champion and its second-longest world champion during the height of its influence over the wrestling world. Nigel, beyond being an incredible professional wrestler, is also a professional in life. He has integrity, honesty, he's generous, he's kind, he's a wonderful human being, and I have known the man for near a decade now. He is one of my closest friends and the only person I could think of when it came to really dissecting what professional wrestling is, what the art of professional wrestling is. First person I thought of was Nigel. And so if you're not a fan of wrestling or you you are walking into this podcast with a um, predetermined conception of what it may or may not be, I urge you to erase that for an hour, hour and a half and come into this podcast with an open mind. Because I think once you hear Nigel's perspective on on what he not only views wrestling as, but what he's put into it personally, I think that you'll be really impressed with what goes into making um, this silly little sport that we love called professional wrestling. It is one of the most complex and creative art forms out there, and yet I think a lot of people kind of pass on it, and I think that's unfortunate. So hopefully today we can turn some of those opinions around. So I will um, say no more and make room for our guests. Without further ado, our guest today, speaking about the art of wrestling, Nigel McGuinness. Hello there, Mr. McGuinness. Sweetheart, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing all right, actually. Not so bad at all. Yeah, it's a bit grey and a bit uh, rainy here in Los Angeles, but uh, change is sometimes good, mate. Oh, it always is. Is it, Does that, obviously, you were born in England. Does that remind you of home in any way? Like, do, I always wondered this because, because as an American, hmm. there always tends to be this sort of fascination with London and the UK in general. And uh, whenever you talk to someone from that area, someone who's British, the first thing they always say is, it's rainy, it's dreary, it's <laughs> shitty, you wouldn't love it. But like, is, like for you now, because you've been away from home for uh, a long time, as far as where you permanently live, like it, when you have a day like this, 
Does this does this evoke any sort of like uh, nostalgia for you, or is it just a rainy day and you're you're glad you left that behind for sunny California? Yeah, it doesn't. No, it's not nostalgia so much. I think, as you know, you're living in Southern California. Rain is so unusual, so rare that when it does come, it's it's a nice change. Oftentimes, you know, and little things. You know, now I've got a young daughter as well. Seeing it through her eyes, like jumping in muddy puddles right. and walking to school or stuff like that, you just you forget about those sort of things. Is and, she uh, three now? Two? Four and a half, going to be five next. Wow! Time. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that time has flown. It's just that, hasn't it? That's yeah. nuts. Yeah, because I guess she would have been born right after my nephew was born. Yeah, maybe. I just had a had a five year old running around my house for a week, so <laughs> I can. It's funny to watch them experience things uh. for the first time like when he was when Harvey was two I took him to the beach took him to Santa Monica and of course most times not this last couple of weeks as an exception but most times even during the winter time it's, it's pleasant so we took him down there and it was the first time he'd ever seen the ocean or sand because hmm. they live in Austin, right? right? And I grew up on the beach, so that was really cool. And then, you know, as a five-year-old now, now he's older and he understands things more, um, his sense of creativity is starting to really come out. Like, he was really fast. I bought him a, a little movie camera for him to make home videos, and um, he was so excited about that that he could make his creativity like capture it I don't mm. think he understands quite how yet mm. but seeing that observing that is it is pretty fun and and, and kind of makes you recontextualize how you feel about certain things yeah, you should do you really should do they're the, the epitome of being present aren't they you know oh yeah and uh, that certainly helps me trying to just sort of not constantly plan what I'm doing next or think about what I did in the past you know it's very difficult to be present to meditate you know I've been doing my best to meditate and it's it's hard isn't it it, really you, is. it is do you do you have like a is there like a style of meditation that you like because it's different like are the you a sitting thing, quiet guy or well I think I am the latest thing I've done uh, Naim Dar turned me on to waking up with Sam Harris okay he's got an app uh, so I signed up for that and um I just I always get stuck. He has this 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 concept of of it's hard to explain really. Um, looking for the self and finding that it's not there. Hmm. It's a philosophical concept, and I don't I just can't get it. You know, it's like look for the person who's looking, and you'll find that he's not there, and then you're supposed to have this epiphany, and and it just it's it's never there. I think I'm I'm too too bound to my ego if that makes sense well I was gonna say it, it sounds like what he's promoting or what he's trying to guide you to is like the dissolution of ego hmm. the recognizing that everything that we are is a matter of um, uh, how do we say this uh, interpretation so what we perceive as sight is really our body interpreting light refracting through our eyes and uh, electrical currents and and but it's not it, it it's it's re, it's a reaction to a bunch of stimuli hmm. and it formulates a vision we i see you sitting across from me not because i'm actually seeing you in real time but more like a video camera like a film camera i'm capturing information and then when i run it back then it only because of course this happens at the speed of thought right yeah you know um similarly i've often said this like if you look at life and you think of it like a monet painting 
if you had the strongest telescope known to man or microscope, whatever you want to call it, um, and you and you peered through it like binoculars, what you would see is infinite atoms, protons, mm-hmm. neutrons, electrons, just right. buzzing around. Like there would be no you, there would be no me, there would be no table. None of this would be in focus. You would just see a series of dots. Yeah. Like if you stood really, really close to a Monet. It's only when we pull back. It's only when we contextualize things. When our brain tries to make sense of everything that's going on around us that we formulate what we consider life. Right. And perhaps in that way, that's what he's trying to get you to sort of recognize. That everything that we perceive is a... The people use the term the, an illusion, which makes it seem like it's a lie, but it's not. Hmm. It's not a lie, but it is an illusion. It isn't real in the, in the way that we think things are real. It's more like a recording that we've now made sense of. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, everybody obviously has a, has a perception of the world around them. And uh, to a certain extent, I'm sure you can control that. Unless you're like me and Vigity that believes that free will is an illusion completely. And that, 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 the universe is entirely deterministic. Well, it's funny because I was always a hardcore... A free will believer. Yeah. Probably because my ego demands it. But the more I started exploring these sort of um, existential questions and, and through some esoteric study, this idea that time is linear is, I think most people, at the, or at least most educated people at this point, understand that time does not operate in a linear fashion. Much like how I was talking about with perception of reality around us, hmm. I think. The, the most accepted theory is that time exists all at once. Like every moment that has ever occurred is occurring. Hmm. It's merely our consciousness is moment. And it perceiving things in this right now that allow, like, like a frame of a camera. Right? Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And so uh, to your point, if everything that's ever happened has already happened and is happening, then you're right. Would it all just sort of be pre-selected for us? Now, what throws a monkey wrench in that and really will boil your noggin is when you start believing in things like the multiverse, right? right? Wherein not only does everything that has ever happened happened and is currently happening, and it's just a matter of us perceiving it at any given point, but everything that could possibly happen is happening in an infinite, which then begs the question... Perhaps we're thinking of free will incorrectly. Perhaps what we're really doing is a choose-your-own-adventure of sorts Mm. where all the possibilities are laid out in front of us and have happened. And we're simply choosing to string together, almost like a mad lib. You're you're choosing this word and you're putting in your sentence. You're choosing that word. And that construction, that film role of image is what we call life. But it could easily be swapped out in in, in different ways. So are we, in fact bound by destiny or are we just editors cutting together our cut of life within this ego and this consciousness yeah I mean obviously I believe in, in the um, the former that everything's already predetermined but uh, as I talk with R.D. Evans it's kind of a moot point right. either it's a deterministic world and then even this conversation that we're having has already happened therefore it's redundant or it's not and then there's no point talking about it anyway, so... That's right. It's, really, it's fascinating. <laughs> we didn't, didn't plan on talking about any of this. Um, yeah. What we plan to talk about, and what I would like to talk about, mm. is professional wrestling. Uh, you're, our friendship notwithstanding, I think you're one of the best pro wrestlers, certainly of the modern era, 
that I've ever watched. And uh, I'm sad only in that I came to know your body of work after we met. <laughs> so I have to share the story of how we met. So we were both training jujitsu under uh, uh, Professor Alberto Crane in, in uh, Burbank, California. And I, th I think you had started maybe right before me. Hmm. I think you had started, you'd already, I think you were there. Hmm. Or maybe you started, we started around the same time though. And um, at the time you were coming out of, I guess you must have been coming out of TNA or, or your post TNA run. And you had your head shaved. <laughs> and you were a lot, you were kind of in your wrestling size then. So you, you had a, a thicker, meatier sort of appearance. And you looked to me like, uh, Fedor Emelianko, the famous pride heavyweight MMA fighter. And I thought this fucking guy looks like Fedor. I'm gonna get a photo with him, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna trick my friends or whatever. I don't know what the fuck I was really thinking, but I had this idea that I'll get a photo with this guy and I'll joke with my friends that I met Fedor. And so you and I were chit chatting in the locker room, and as you took your gi off, you had a Shining Wizard podcast T-shirt on, <laughs> and. Uh, it's it's fitting because the Great Muda is doing his retirement run, mm. but I grew up a huge Great Muda fan. Mm. Like I was a big uh, Jim Crockett Productions, uh, WCW guy, and the Great Muda and Sting and all the the Steiner Brothers. That was my wrestling. Big Band Van ba Vader, etc. So I knew the Shining Wizard because I knew I knew uh, the Great Muda, and I thought, oh, who knows that? Who would possibly outside of wrestling? Who knows this? Because at the time, I didn't realize. That you were prof or, or at that point a retired professional wrestler, yeah. and then you know, then you came to understand and know that I was a filmmaker, and we we found common ground, and then mm. our friendship was sort of born from there, which I think has been almost ten years now. Yeah, it would have been right. Yeah, I think we met in twenty thirteen. Mm, because uh, yeah, I retired, uh, and the documentary came out in March of twenty twelve. So yeah, yeah, so it was right after your retirement. Yeah, so yeah. so that was sort of the beginnings of our. Friendship, And then, of course, once I knew you were a wrestler, I went back and watched a lot of your work. And, of course, most importantly, I watched your documentary, which you just referenced, The Last of McGinnis. And um, if you haven't seen it, is it still available? Can you still get it off your website? or No, it's uh, a few things online to find okay. it. Yeah. So try to find it because it's it's fantastic. And um, there's a, there's a, it, it chronicles your retirement. Your post TNA retirement run um, on the independence and what I love about it, which you you shot, produced, star yeah, in, edited it myself. Yeah, I was inspired by Colt Cabana actually. Done that Wrestling World Diaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, which you should go out of your way to see as well. I think there's a second one of those as well somewhere around there. And uh, I I didn't know what to do. It was uh, you know things hadn't gone well at TNA and I was pretty much done with everything and I said uh, I said to him what do you do and he just said get a camera just start shooting something and put something together mm. and with that impetus and uh, one of my good friends Trevor went out of his way he bought a video camera for me from Best Buy and, <laughs> and that's it and I just yeah just, just booked a retirement tour and filmed it shot it taught myself how to edit it and put it up on Kickstarter and uh, that was what made it happen actually it was the support of fans you know coming to my aid and obviously some of my friends in the wrestling business pushing it on social media and that was 
God, that would have been 2011, so a very different time, right? Yeah. In terms of the internet and social media. The world. Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, Kickstarter. I mean, that... Because right. remember when Kickstarter came out, we, we thought it was going to revolutionize filmmaking hmm. and, and projects in general. And I, I guess to some degree, I mean, certainly your project yeah. is testament to that, but I, it does feel like that moment, that was a moment in time. Right. Um, but what I love about this story is that it, it, it how it resonated with me is that it's the story of every independent filmmaker. Hmm. You know, I, I grew up uh, and, and sort of came into film as a big Robert Rodriguez fan and his book, Rebel Without a Crew. And essentially, he gives the same kind of advice. Like, if you want to be a filmmaker, stop saying you're a filmmaker and just go do it. Go be one. Yeah. Pick up a camera. Uh, don't buy all this, the fancy equipment that comes with it. Just find what you have because... It'll make it uniquely yours. Right. And I would say that The Last of McGinnis, your documentary, is not only a, a, a great film by traditional standards, by classical criticism, it's a very good film, but it's, it is yours. It feels so intimate. It almost feels like a video diary in a way. Hmm. And it is absolutely a story about, and this is my interpretation, so feel free to correct sure. your, your, your intention. But to me, it's a story about giving up the ghost. Or at least coming to terms with one chapter ending, you know, I would imagine that for you, most of your career was in pursuit of a goal. And this was really you coming to terms with perhaps that wasn't in the cards, which is which is such a human emotion, right? Mm. The, the, the girl or guy that got away, the, the job you didn't get, the, the success you didn't quite achieve, the, the, the sales you didn't quite get to, mm. the dreams you couldn't quite live for whatever the reason. Right. But not only that, but like the catharticness that comes with acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. It's far more of a universal story. I think I, I always said that as well, which is interesting, isn't it? Because generally speaking, we have far more interest in reading stories about super successful people. Right. And, um, you could understand why as well, because we always need that sort of inspiration to believe that we can make it as well. But you can make an argument that as important as having that ambition is is having the ability to handle it when ultimately we don't because not everybody can make it, you know. 100%. And I think that was certainly once I'd shot it and sat down and started looking at what I got, that was kind of the story. Not so much giving up the dream of what I wanted originally, but we talked about perception just starting out in the podcast, didn't we? changing that perception of what I'd done and through talking to other people and putting together what you mentioned that that really examining what pro wrestling was the art form that I fell in love with and came to understand that was really the journey for me and then putting that story out and having it touch people like you or you know I've made so many good friends my great friend Chris Booker in the UK, um, he booked me on a uh, a tour doing the uh, documentary around the UK and uh, just getting to connect with people like that. And um, you know, I can't remember for the life of me if it came through the documentary or some other time. I think it was before perhaps, but there was a fan in the UK who reached out to me and it was one of the most touching stories I ever ever heard um he was a wrestling fan and uh, his mother was a wrestling fan as well 
and it's been so long ago since uh, he told me this story I may have got it all wrong <laughs> it's not the best as it is but in my recollection um, they'd sort of grown tired of wrestling at the end of the Attitude Era or whatever else and uh, this guy had come across Ring of Honor mm-hmm. and told his mum about Ring of Honor and you've got to come and watch this this is different you know this is yeah. what you, you used to see and she came down and she really liked Nigel McGuinness, the character. Yeah. And so they sort of bonded over this wow. this thing. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, his mother had a stroke, uh, and mm. so was very debilitated in terms of what she could do or whatever else, and even in terms of communicating. But that was the one thing that they could always connect on. Wow. You know, talking about Ring of Honor and talking about me, and and that was incredible to see that effect that you can have on people you know that you're just completely unaware of because you're perhaps a little bit too nearsighted uh, and you're too obsessed with trying to achieve this or trying to achieve that and I think that's the story that 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 applies to everyone really yeah you know I mean you don't need to necessarily pursue your dreams to do that I mean Chris we just passed Christmas haven't we it's a wonderful life that's right that's the story of it's a wonderful life isn't it the, the lives that you affect that you have no idea about well and that and I think that that um, what you said about your story it is a human story and it is universal mm. and I think that stories like you told in The Last of McGinnis being a storyteller in general as a pro wrestler we don't always recognize the power that that has, but storytelling has been used since the earliest days and not just mm. for entertainment. I think that that's something that certainly in the world of film, you see you see a shift towards it strictly being in entertainment or strictly being commerce. But you do need that balance between spectacle and heart. And I think that, um, you know, I can buy the great mood as greatest hits and that'd be fun, fun entertainment. But watching your movie, watching your documentary and really understanding and, and feeling the emotion that you feel as you're going through that process. And then hearing, I mean, your story, as far as this, this young person um, and their mother, like bonding over this Mm. shows the power that it has, that the power of storytelling has, it's shamanic in a way, you know? Yeah. I think it's human nature, isn't it? It's how they passed on, um, you know, um, information to the next generation isn't it you don't do this because of this and you tell a story about it and that really sort of as as human beings we just we connect a story don't we we really do there was a i don't i I, forgive me if i forget who made this quote but there's a there's a quote regarding art and it's a question is art uh, is the purpose of art to be a mirror or a hammer Hmm. and i uh maybe in my in my sort of solomon mindset said it's both the role of art or storytelling, in my opinion, is to hold a mirror up to society and then shatter the image with a hammer. It's to show us the world from a point of view, but it also is subverting that. It's subverting that generally accepted viewpoint. It's it's challenging. It's questioning. And I think in, in a... In a frankly from my perspective a misunderstood art form like wrestling I think there's a lot of uh, that view that commonly accepted view that needs a little shaking up and needs a little shattering and that I thought was done excellently well 
by your very human story. Mm, this isn't sure. this isn't you know um, behind the scene gossip or shoot YouTube interviews or any of that stuff. That is just kind of the common thing. This is really you, Nigel, Stephen, showing yourself, exposing your soul. Yeah, and I don't. I can't think of any other wrestlers that have done that. I mean, there may be other stuff out there, maybe yeah, the Coca Cabana sure, thing, etc. Yeah, but yeah. like, but like, um, that was the first time. And I, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong pro wrestling fan. But that, when I watched your documentary, that was the first time that I really felt like I related to someone. I mean, again, we were friends at this point, but even yeah. beyond that, like this is the when I felt like I really had some inkling of what it was like, and. I think that's a that's a beautiful thing, and that's that's mm. really speaks to the power of, of storytelling, yeah. which you've always done, both in the ring and and through your documentary adventures. There's a segment in your documentary that is um, especially profound to me. Uh, it's a short segment, it's maybe only a minute or two, uh, and I believe you're you're wrestling. I believe you're wrestling um, Tyler Black. In, you know, as, as people would more more immediately recognize as Seth Rollins in a in a black and white slow motion sequence. I yeah. think it's slow motion, right? It's been a while since I've seen your movie, right? Um, and you have this beautiful classical score um, underneath it, mm. and you're really talking about the art of pro wrestling. And um, again, I don't know if I'd ever really heard it talked about in that way yeah. with. The kind of love that I talk about film, you were talking about pro wrestling. And I, get, I think that's another reason why we bonded. Yeah. Because we both have a passion for this art form. Yours was pro wrestling, is pro wrestling, mine is filmmaking. But, um, you know, it's been over 10 years since you made that documentary. I guess where to, to revisit that moment. Mm. Now we're going to recontextualize that moment a little bit. To go back to that moment... How did you feel wrestling was? What? How did? How was wrestling defined to you in, in your mind? And has that changed over time? No, I think ultimately it's still the same in its base core. It's, uh, it's still telling a story, you know, um, and not one story. There are many different stories that you can tell with it, you know. But uh, I think as far as that movie was concerned, I felt it necessary, and that was early on in the movie, to explain what wrestling was as an art form because to your point there were two types of people in the world people who got it and people who didn't yeah and i always felt like if you could see it from the inside from my perspective you should get it it should be held i always felt like it should be held up in the same esteem as broadway or movies or any, any other kind of storytelling art form whatsoever it's just it's, it's it's a strange thing i always used to say you can watch a bad movie mm-hmm. and you don't go oh I don't like movies right right but you see one bad wrestling match <sighs> and you're out and you're out and I don't know why that is true I don't know why that is the case or more importantly if you're a fan you can see a bad wrestling match and it makes no difference to you at all yeah because you have seen the good matches yeah you know? and you get it and you get it it's, it's it's a strange thing so I was trying to convey in that the beauty of it the artistry of it and and that does change to some extent when I was thinking about coming over here today <clears throat> and uh, you know I thought we might talk about this I 
try to go through my head to try to really understand what it is and you think back to the history of of pro wrestling it obviously started um in the carnivals out of what was essentially um legitimate sporting contests yeah and then little by little they realized that they could make it a little bit more predetermined and a little bit more entertaining etc etc safer in some regards right in some regards safer and in other regards not you know as as the case may be it's funny to see how it's evolved over all these sort of years there was a guy and again I might be getting this completely wrong but in my recollection there was a an NFL football player called Gus Sonnenberg Mm -hmm. I believe this was in like the 1920s you'd have to go to a wrestling historian to to get it right but um, he came in and because he was an NFL player um they decided that his finishing maneuver or his, you know, his character move was going to be the running shoulder block. Makes sense, right? We've got a football background, yeah. And all the old school wrestlers who'd been there before said, "You're killing the business. You know, <laughs> it makes no sense. Why does somebody stand there while you run into them?" And right, right. And every step of the way, you know, every great wrestler who's drawn money, the ones before said, "You know, you're killing it." And ultimately, it all comes back to the same thing, entertaining people. And how do you entertain people? You tell a story, right? And so if I think back to that, it's, it's, it's that if you think about movies or TV, for example, you have a script. It's written out. You may practice it. Mm-hmm. Certain movies, TV, you can reshoot certain parts of it and then you edit it in mix. With wrestling, there's not that same level of predetermination, I guess, to a certain extent. Certainly with TV wrestling, there's more predetermination. But there's always that ability to ad-lib on the fly. Right. You know, and and ad-lib in reaction to the crowd as well. Yeah. If you take a play, for example... They're not going to change the lines right. based on the crowd reaction. Right. And, you know, to be fair, in modern pro wrestling, you're not going to change much either sure. based on it. Now, some people may, certainly if it's on a house show. Right. Where you have a little bit more freedom. A little to- bit more freedom where, you know, you don't have a TV camera, you don't have a time to go in and out or whatever else, you know. But ultimately, it's still that same same idea of, of telling that story and, and reacting to it and and being part of everything coming together on the same night in the same moment. That's what I think is unique about pro wrestling in that regard. You could have that same match with the same person, move for move, timing for timing, but in a different place a different venue a different crowd you wouldn't get that same reaction you wouldn't get that same right you know it wouldn't be as good as well so there's something magical about that you know um and i think that's the job for everybody that's in the business whether they're wrestling themselves or they're helping create the wrestling behind the scenes is is try to find those moments that that connect with people like that yeah there's um for me as a fan the thing that I I can't shake, and I've tried to shake pro wrestling many times. Mm. You know, like I again, I was a Jim Jim Crockett's production guy, and yeah. and somewhere around high school, so ninety five, ninety six, I kind of got out of wrestling. 
wasn't nearly as into it. And then the Attitude Era begins and I get back into wrestling um, for a little while. But still, like, and I'll get to the point about why it is that people see one bad wrestling match and it turns them off forever. But at this time, I mean, it's funny because I understood that wrestling was predetermined. My grandfather used to be a referee in South Texas. Mm. Um, I wish I had more information about it. I really do. I've, I've asked my mom, but my mom was like six or ten when when he was, you know. So yeah. she vaguely remembers like meeting Santo or probably, I don't know, probably I'm trying to think of that era. God, I don't even know if the 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 uh, it was lucha was it? It probably was lucha. It must have been because mm. my mom's, you know, my mom would have been ten in the sixties. So, yeah. um, so I always knew because mom would tell me that that she would see in the back that the boys would be friendly yeah you know so I knew that they weren't really angry at each other but at, in my adolescence I still thought uh, it was a contest right but you know they're just they're not really angry they're, they're playing it up like like you see in boxing or MMA now mm. um, like your Conor McGregor's or your, your Jake Paul's and what have you yeah and then you know, then I went through. Then when the attitude era ends, much like the person in your earlier story, I drifted away for many, many years. And it really wasn't until um, the pipe bomb um, that came out in 2011 that I was like, "What is this thing?" <laughs> there, I, I kind of briefly said this to you before we started recording, um, and I don't mean this as a sort of a suck up or, or anything like that, but I I think that for me. There's kind of a, a a Mount Rushmore of wrestling saviors to overstate, perhaps. <laughs> um, Come on. Well, look, I mean, for me, wrestling was a fight. Was it a fight? Yeah. Hmm. Now, I might know it's predetermined. <clears throat> I might know they're really friends in the back. Yeah. But when they're in the ring, it's a fight. So you wanted to be able to suspend your disbelief. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So... When I go back, who's this punk guy? You know, mm. honestly, I, I remember... Do you remember... Uh, what was his name? Restless Youth? Yeah, Okay. Reckless Youth. Reckless Youth. Yeah, yeah. Youth. So I thought that... I confused the two people because I'd been mm. out of wrestling for so long and I remember Reckless Youth vaguely from like the old Aptor magazines. Yeah, yeah. But I'd never seen him because of right. course this is pre-internet. So yeah. I... And he wasn't on one of the main two. So I, I, I... But I knew him and he... I knew he had like a kind of a punk rocky look. So when... CM Punk came out I just confused the two people mm. and then and then I realized this is a different guy obviously in a generational part party but um, I went back and saw the ROH stuff yeah. and you know look I mean again you're part of it so I understand it's probably hard for you to see that objectively but Samoa Joe Brian Danielson CM Punk and Nigel McGuinness in my opinion if not for the four of you and many others obviously Modern wrestling is completely different, completely different than it is now. And I think that you maintained that suspension of disbelief that wasn't as popular during that period of time when it was a little bit more entertaining and a little bit more um, about like the the sort of the scripted nature of it rather than the sort of the competitive nature. And this is no judgment call. This is just hmm. um, a, a matter of like, I would imagine in Ring of Honor, you just have a lot less 
stories and and production value and everything else yeah it was far more based upon the actual in-ring bell-to-bell stuff for sure and and certainly some of those guys uh, you know all modesty aside I wouldn't I wouldn't include myself in that but um, dude you're like the Iggy you're like the Iggy Pop of that era like (laughs) like you are to that era of wrestler what Iggy Pop was to punk like you you're like you're like if if not for your contribution then that era doesn't. I mean, again, not just yours, mm. but if 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 not for your contribution, do we get a Dean Ambrose, John Moxley? Do yeah. we get a lot of these guys I who saw uh, you? Uh, there's no one person I think you could say is that instrumental. But if you take them out of the picture, it wouldn't progress in the same way. I think there are certain. Uh, I think Dragon certainly would have to be up there. Joe, yeah, low key. Uh, amazing red you know Christopher Daniels with presenting that sort of a style yeah and you could take any one of those people out of there you take them all away then yes I, I, I understand your point but certainly no, no one in of themselves but be that as it may an interesting kink in the chain of the evolution of the style and it's interesting I talked to William Regal about it he talked to the, he said they might be really good to have a book detailing the evolution of the style of pro wrestling and where it all came from and who had this influence and um, the you know the all the different people that influenced it because it really is interesting all the different places around the world yeah when they used to have wrestling territories and people would go from one place to another and that was how styles evolved right you learn a little bit from here and a little bit from there um, <clears throat> so yeah I, I, I certainly think that Ring of Honor was part of that. Um, ECW, yeah. obviously a huge part of that. And you could make an argument Ring of Honor was really just following on in that sort of space in the marketplace that ECW had but, taken. But in a different way, right? Mm. Um, because because what I love about pro wrestling, in spite of myself sometimes, mm. is that it combines the a lot of things I love. It, it's cinema. It's storytelling. It's music. It's rock and roll. Yeah. Um, it's 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 pizzazz and it's heart. It's it's just it's a strange combination, hmm. and it's live. To your point earlier, like it's right. it's not like you can't be saved. You can't fix it in post for the most part. Yeah. You know you can't auto tune it. Like, and so to to lean into the sort of the musical analogy. I think you could look at pro wrestling much like you can look at the the evolution of of music, hmm. and I and for me that era of hmm. Ring of Honor is the is equatable to punk rock in music I because I loved ECW growing up. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, because I was like thirteen. I don't know if I as a forty two year old nearly I would it holds up quite in the same way to me. Yeah, I mean like I love Sandman's entrance. You know, because right. it was Metallica and it was cool. And yeah. um, but within you know, when you when you put the Sandmans and the Sabus and and those folks aside, you did have your Chris Jericho briefly stopping through there. You had your um, Lance Storms. You have your there was a lot of these sort of more technical mm. uh, Dynamite Kid influenced pro wrestlers. And I think from that subsection. Is kind of what I, in my view, kind of Ring of Honor kind of sprung from. I mean, you got to think though, Ring of Honor did have plenty of hardcore matches, certainly in the early days. You know, they had a lot of like multi man matches with, yeah. with a lot of excitement going on. There was a little bit of everything, you know, I think. And that's what Gabe was so good at in terms of putting the product together and, 
and letting everybody go out and, and emphasizing their strengths and, and hiding their weaknesses. That's why he was so brilliant for me, I know. Well, and I think that brings the, that brings us to the question that I think is um, a misguided question that gets debated far too much, which is what is wrestling? Hmm. I think folks tend to have an idea of what wrestling is. And it's largely, again, to, to, to lean into the music analogy, it's largely sort of based on when you grew up. You know, like if you, me as a cinema guy, right? I grew yeah. up in the, I, I came of age in the, re, the the indie boom in the 90s. And those guys, Tarantino and Rodriguez, were all influenced by the new Hollywood movement uh, in the 70s. So those are my, those are my eras. All right. To a lesser degree, because I'm a horror fan and because I came, I was a child during the 80s, those schlocky sl- slashers have a have a warm place in my heart, like ECW does, mm. even though maybe some of it doesn't quite hold yeah, up to the yeah. same standard. I see that, yeah. And I think, I think when, when it comes to the conversation about what wrestling is or isn't, is it performance, is it story, is it whatever your perspective of it is, is kind of rooted in kind of where you fell in love with wrestling. If you're a Jim Crockett Productions guy, you find a certain style of wrestling probably more your aesthetic. If you Hmm. grew up in the rock and wrestling of WWF and Hogan and Ultimate Warrior, which I know you're a big fan of and child, then then you would have a slightly different kind of view on music. Mm. Just like if you, you know, depending on if you grew up listening to the 70s classic rock or 80s punk rock and new wave or 90s grunge, right? It all kind of, but I don't think that's the important part because that's just, that's just subjective taste. I feel like for me as a wrestler, and you noted this earlier, I know it's not real. Just like I know a movie's not real. Right. But I want to believe it's real. Hmm. And I think you mentioned, or you asked earlier why people see one bad wrestling match and they turn it off. And I think it comes down to kayfabe. For anyone who's not familiar with kayfabe, it's, it's, it is the... Oh, you describe it. You're the... <laughs> <laughs> kayfabe is a, a broad term which basically talks about the secrecy perspective, pres- protecting the uh, inside workings of the industry. Uh, so, for example, if you were in a locker room and someone walked in who wasn't part of the industry, you'd say kayfabe out loud so that everybody knew to not give away how how things were right. worked. Um, so that's basically the idea of it. Kayfabe is an idea that there's them and us, there's people on the inside of the industry and there's people on the outside of the industry. And it used to be the conception that if you break kayfabe that you're killing the business because once people realize that it's not predetermined or that, that it is predetermined rather, then they will no longer watch anymore. And there certainly was a big part of it in the UK in the 80s. Um, there was one of the old school wrestlers, uh, Jackie Palo who um, at the end of his career either wrote a book or he did something in one of the newspapers. Again, you'd have to go to one of the historians to get the actual details. But in doing so, you know, he was um, blackballed for the rest of his life and his kid was as well, you know, because he really, they really did feel. And, And you can make an argument that there probably was something to that, perhaps, back in those days. I don't know, but that's certainly, you know, long and gone now. I mean, it's... Well, it's funny because I, you know, when I came of age, again, I never, I never believed it was 100% real mm. because I had what well, my, my mom and grandpa would tell me and, and, and you know, what have you. Uh, and, I, and, and again, I kind of came of age in the rock and wrestling era where it was a little bit more fantastical. But I wonder if, to me, I guess, I think there's the downside of kayfabe 
is that it assumes that you're tricking your audience. And I think that if you're an audience and you perceive yourself or, or you have the perception that you're perceived as a dope, yeah, that it triggers something inside of you to disprove that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, oh, that's not real. Like, you, know, you go out of your way to show that it's right. quote unquote not real because no one wants to feel like an idiot. But no yeah. one does that for films. Do you know what I'm saying? Like no one watches Game of Thrones. Because before Lord of the Rings, if you made a dragon movie or yeah. a dragon TV show, it was schlock. Right. Lord of the Rings elevates that, but it's still strictly fantasy. It's still mostly geared towards nerds and spectacle and what have you. But Game of Thrones introduces this sort of political drama. And suddenly it's the biggest show on television. Right. With a, within a genre that would have at a different time be perceived in the same way that you mentioned when if you see like a bad wrestling match mm. yeah yeah and I think that it's not because people suddenly believe dragons are real it's because it is so engrossing right that you for that hour that you're watching television or whatever you you're transported within the story exactly yeah the, the story is much stronger than anything else that goes along with it and I think that's the, that's the universal theme in the human condition do you think that wrestling as a whole held on or debated kayfabe a little bit too long instead of because because again as a fan mm. what I think is you have two schools you have the school that that laments the past that has passed right and they want to return to an era of the territories where everything was kayfabe and, and most people either didn't know or didn't let on that they know or what have you and then you have the people who are like everyone knows it's not it's predetermined it's not real so let's just put on a spectacle because we all know we're all wink wink nod nod we all know that this is I'm not really fighting someone and I feel like the answer might be kind of more in between where where it's not about clinging to the past or just accepting that everyone knows it's not real but Mm. but striving and obviously there are people who do it but striving to say I know you know you don't I know you know it's not real but I'm gonna make you feel like it's real for 12 minutes or 20 minutes or 10 minutes well, or you whatever. have to you have to be able to suspend your disbelief for sure and it's interesting when you talk about what you really you get into in terms of wrestling in terms of understanding how it works the art form of how to tell a story etc etc because sometimes I think and I've heard other wrestlers talk about this that once you get inside the industry and you understand how it all works and, and the psychology of a match etc etc you lose that sense of magic and yeah. love about it because maybe it's the same with movies it is you Absolutely. watch a movie and you can't see it the same way I've got um, you know uh, Max Maven good friend of mine uh, unfortunately recently passed away was a big wrestling fan as well and he always would find similarities between magic and between wrestling Mm -hmm. that's why he was a big fan of it and I know Finley always talks about magic you watch it and you like it but you don't want to see how the tricks are done otherwise Mm -hmm. you don't enjoy it anymore and I think he certainly sees wrestling in the same way so I understand that mindset certainly um I also understand the mindset that you're talking about is that when you do understand it, you have a little bit more respect for it mm-hmm. when you realize how difficult it is to do. And not just from a, because you hear that a lot. Uh, you, a lot of people say, 
yeah, but you're great athletes and it's really dangerous because you can really hurt each other. And that's 100% true. Yeah. But the mental aspect of how to pull people into what is essentially a, you know, a, a, a scripted fight is more difficult in my mind. The little nuances of right. that that you really only get after 10, 15, 20 years. Right. That's what really makes me see the magic in it, you know? Yeah. And that's things, you know, as a fan of film that you would probably pick up that even people who are, you know, watch movies all the time don't get. I mean, I'm listening to um, Chasing the Light, which is Oliver Stone's mm. um, autobiography. Okay. I've got on the CD, I've been listening to it at the moment. It's a beautiful name, by the way. That's a wonderful name, by the way, for his... Chasing the Light? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's great. As a film guy, it's like, oh, God. <laughs> right. Flashbacks. He's fantastic. Um, but the detail that he goes into, not just the filmmaking process, but the business process behind the scenes as well, the stuff that I could never even have dreamt of. Yeah. It's that same notion, I think, in wrestling that most people don't get. And I always, once I started learning about how it worked... I wanted to tell other people even though I was told not to because I thought if they understood this then I understand it. they'd have more respect for yeah, it. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I think you're not wrong. I don't know if I am or not because well, when I have tried to tell people who aren't fans that part of it, it, it just doesn't seem to get through to them and, and maybe that's okay. You know, I mean, maybe it's not for everybody. Yeah, well, look, certainly, but I, I think also you're you're fighting, unfortunately, a very unfair uphill battle because of the perception that wrestling is for mm. hillbillies or dumb or what have you, and it's like a, it's low class entertainment. And traditionally, throughout history, uh, what what's called lowbrow art has always been viewed in a certain way, mm. and um, it doesn't make it bad. Right. And lots of people enjoy it, but you know, country music is one of those genres of music where mm. people look down on it because it's an association with Southerners. And as a Southerner, like I can tell you, you know, I get so irritated when people make, um, even my wife will do this sometimes. She'll, she'll be emulating someone who is of low intelligence she'll, and she'll put on an accent like this. I'm like, you know, your husband's from Texas, right? <laughs> like, you know, I was like, I can point to any Australian <laughs> and find a dummy and like it wouldn't represent your whole country. And so, the, you know, I, I think that wrestling and country music, um, what's the racing car, uh, NASCAR, NASCAR yeah, 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 yeah. All that kind of stuff has a connotation, unfortunately, mm. that is very hard to overcome, even though there's some brilliant artists in all of those fields. Yeah. Um, I also, but you, you mentioned earlier, like when you get into film and you start knowing what a dolly is and you start knowing what where the lights are and you start learning you start understanding what the craft of acting is like and how chaotic making a film is and how stressful it is and how much money goes into it and how much ego goes into it hmm. you absolutely can lose some of that ability to feel the magic it's right. very easy to allow yourself to become bitter and have it become a job yeah and how I avoid that because it is an active thing I have to because sometimes I'll watch movies you know I'll watch a Marvel film and I, I can't get into it hmm. I, I can't suspend my disbelief when I watch that it's too much spectacle not hmm. enough story yeah but I watched the, I rewatched The Godfather the other day in fact on New Year's Day, New Year's Eve my wife and I weren't feeling great 
We decided not to go out. It's, it's amateur hour anyway outside. So we watched The Godfather and Scarface back to back. And I was engrossed. Hmm. And I never in what? Those are two long movies. Six yeah, hours? Yeah, yeah. Remembered that I was a filmmaker. Oh, wow. Because that's how good the stories were. Hmm. Even though I know how the sausage is made. I know. And, and I was just watching a series called The Offer, which is a... It's very fantasy but it's it's about the it's a 10 episode miniseries about the making of the godfather and it really gives you some more insight in the behind the scenes again from a very specific perspective yeah. i don't know if reality quite matches up as is usually the case with biopics but right. um but i know how the sausage is made i i i know i could probably guess and i do this sometimes i'll guess budgets just based on like a trailer i see but if a story is strong enough, yeah. if the acting is good enough, right. if and if the story that they're telling is not just told well, but if the story itself, if the core of the story is important, then I'll lose myself. Like right. like I was a fan, like I was a fan watching movies in the theater, right? Like the first time I saw the Return of the Jedi, or or Blade Runner, or mm. or, or Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? I'll lose myself in that because. The quality is so high, and what it, yeah. it what it reinstalls in me is this drive to maybe one day create something that could be somewhat even remotely comparable mm. to that. Is yeah. that is there is there any parallel with wrestling absolutely. in that regard? Yeah, absolutely, and, and wrestling and, and every other art form. I'm sure you know people feel the same way about that. You know, once you're on the inside, they still have moments that touch you. You know, working for WWE, I, I see that all the time. You know, guys who've been in the job for 30 or 40 years and you can see it in their eye when something happens in the ring and it just, just connects like yeah. that for whatever reason. It's a beautiful thing, you know. We're on this earth for such a short period of time. What is it? I had a quote from Carl Sagan, you know? Mm, was, yeah, of course. Yeah. He said, we, um, we act like butterflies as if we are going to live forever. We disappear within a day, something <laughs> like that. Um, paraphrasing, of course, but there's definitely something to that. You know, we're here for such a short period of time on Earth, and you got to appreciate those moments, right? And that's the beauty of pursuing your art, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You know, the ability to to experience those moments. Yeah. Well, you know, I used to look at art as um, a way of extending my legacy or creating a legacy. Hmm. Yeah, There's, I think it's a it's a young man's game of wanting to be known, wanting to be recognized. You, 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 yeah, you really chase that. Ego involved. Yeah. As I've gotten older, as I've rounded forty, and I realize very recently, in fact, that my influence on the zeitgeist, on culture, is going to diminish rapidly. Do you know what I'm saying? Like. There comes a point when you're going to be left behind by culture, just like it happened to our parents. Yeah. And and the things you love, the things you appreciate, the things that you are fond of, they will become the past. Yeah. And no one will understand it in the same way. No one... I mean, I'm sure even now, if I talk about my love for a physical medium of DVDs, someone will say, well, why? Why bother spending the money? You can just get on Amazon. Hmm. Or Netflix or iTunes or something, right? Right. If I um, if I lament the the death of the the mid budget adult drama, there will be someone who says, "Yeah, but look at what Avatar has accomplished. Hmm. Look at the innovation." And that's okay because that's you know people. 
and again, it's easy to do, but people bemoan like all these. And like, I, I do think there are too many remakes and reboots and what have you. But people bemoan this idea of like, oh, this this not doesn't match my childhood's memory of Star Wars or what have you. But you know, the little kid in the theater who's watching it for the first time, for better or for worse. Hmm. Again, not applying a, a moralistic opinion on it. They hopefully, if if all the stars align, walk away with that same love and enjoyment and sense of wonder that I got yeah. when I watched those older movies. And no, so, I'm sure I did, yeah. I always joke about this, but one of my earliest wrestling memories... Other than calling the WCW hotline and asking if Tom Zank was sleeping with Missy Hyatt, which I actually did. I don't know why I got that idea. Damn. Or whatever the fuck I was. What was the answer? They didn't answer it. They hung up on me. <laughs> I literally I called them. Spent probably spent five bucks or whatever it was to ask if the Z-Man was banging Missy Hyatt. I have no idea why I asked that. Um, but aside from that, oh, one man. of my first memories was Sting versus the Black Scorpion. Uh-huh. Do you remember that? You were more of a WWF fan, right? Yeah, I was. Yeah. But do you remember the Black? It was. I'm I'm, I'm familiar with it. Rubbish. <laughs> Does not hold up. Yeah. At all. Right. But for me, as a young man, seeing the cage match and seeing four black scorpions come mm. out of this like fly like like this fly like pod, right? And then for it to be revealed that it's that's Ric Flair, the dastardly Ric Flair, right? Um, that's one of the things that caught me. Yeah. So, sometimes it's easy to look at modern things and just not, again, maybe because you know how sausage is made or you're just mm. a different perspective in your life or what have you. Yeah. But somebody's going to watch Cody versus Seth Rollins in the cage and they're going to get that same experience right. that I got watching Sting versus the Four Horsemen dressed yeah. up as the Black Scorpion. And I think Robocop came to help. I don't remember now, but it's ridiculous era wrestling. But that to me still is there. And I think that if if there are folks who, enough folks who strive to maintain that magic and don't concede the wink wink nod nod, we all know it's all, so let's just be silly. And then there's a place yeah. for that too. Yeah. But like I just don't as a fan, I don't want to lose the heart that I had. Mm. And I and I don't want other people to be robbed of that experience where they're really not just wowed, but pulled in. Yeah, really get connected there, right? Yeah, it still exists for sure. I mean, I, I don't know the actual details and numbers or whatever else, but it seems like from a dollars and cents standpoint, yeah. wrestling business seems to be doing pretty well. Hey, we got you got, <laughs> you got two major productions, right? Yeah. Two major promotions. And and several healthy small you know third fourth fifth promotions yeah. out there. Um, people making money. That was that's that's drastically different from your your peak I would presume right. I mean you had Ring of Honor, but you missed WCW right? Like yeah, WCW was done in uh, what two thousand and one. Yeah, it? yeah. So that was well. I started in ninety eight, but by the time I was really you know yeah cutting my teeth, that was yeah the end of WCW. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really do think there's there's more money to be made nowadays, more people certainly employed in the industry than ever before. So yeah. It seems to be the case, doesn't it, right? It also seems like it's opened up in a way. There was sort of an, ide- an ideal image of what a pro wrestler was. Hmm. And, um, again, I'll just keep drawing parallels between film and, and, and uh, 
wrestling, you know, coming out of the 60s, there's this idea of what a movie is. It's uh, Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's Guys and Gals. It's uh, Sound of Music. Right. Big, sweeping kind of epics, right? Yeah. And then you get your Chinatowns, and you get your Godfathers, and you get your, your uh, Mean Streets, and you get your Taxi Driver, and you get these grittier films that probably an old guard would say aren't really films because yeah. they don't have you know but yeah. they were in their own way and they revolutionized in their own way and and um it feels like now it's all and actually i think in in many regards and it's partially in in uh, because of this it's it, it ties into the internet because now mm. the gatekeepers are a lot less and I think it seems like you people have the ability to find a way to get themselves noticed. I, I love Danhausen. Okay, Danhausen is hilarious. Mm. I don't know that much about him as a pro wrestler. Yeah, in the ring. Right. But he he developed a character, and he was like I think a report came out that he was like the number one T-shirt seller is on PWTs. Right? It was I think the number one, two, and three were Danhausen, yeah. CM Punk, and and MJF. Right. I don't know that Dan Housen is hired in 1983 WWF, or for that matter, the 1983 Jim Carter Productions. Oh, for sure. But, but again, just like with the punk rock analogy, like he found a way to connect with the audience, to develop a character that was intriguing, interesting, funny, silly, whatever it may be. Mm. And God bless the guy, yeah. making, making a living to support his family and entertaining people. And I'll happily buy a mug with his makeup on, you know, faced on it or a t-shirt or whatever because I'm entertained. Yeah, right. And there's that freedom now. Do you, do you feel like, do you feel like there's any detriment to that freedom where, where if, you, if everything is open yeah. to be made in whichever manner catches enough attention, does that, What's your, I guess, just broadly, what's your opinion of that? Like, what, what does that look like in your eyes as kind of a guy who trailblazed that yeah, evolution? No, I, I, I do think it's good. I do think the ability for everybody to express themselves artistically within that medium is a good thing. Uh, broadly speaking, mm -hmm. you obviously hear a lot of people that bemoan that fact because now anybody with their cell phone can have millions of views on YouTube yeah. and all of create a viral sensation or whatever else but that's just the way the world is now you know there's no, no use bemoaning the fact of the matter I think uh, generally speaking it's a good thing as you said it gives those, those sort of people the opportunity uh, there is something to, to be thought about back in the day when it was very difficult to get inside the business and make a name for yourself then there was a little bit more prestige yeah. I think perhaps with being a wrestler certainly a world champion um, but overall no I'd, I'd say yeah I'm, I'm always happy to see more opportunities for more people and the old adage of cream rising to the top the most entertaining people ultimately you know given the opportunity to entertain you know if you look back to the early 2000s all those guys that came through the independence, well, you know, whether it was Punk or Joe or Dragon, whoever it was, you never would have thought. Yeah. We get to the stage that they are now, right? Like Brian Danielson headlining WrestleMania. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Well, and and uh, our good friend Jude Walko, 
is one of those guys who will sometimes bemoan the same thing within film, right? Oh, With the yeah. rise of digital, mm. everyone could be a filmmaker. Mm. Um, and and probably to, to further that parallel, there's, there's probably an oversaturation sometimes. People, Jess is trying to get me to watch this video that someone shot on their phone that's a short phone that's supposedly brilliant, right? Mm. Um, but I would counter that if not for that digital revolution, I probably wouldn't be in film. Right. And I was just thinking that the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword in the sense that, you know, there's much easier access to people to put out a, a ton of crap, but you've got to accept that so that the people with the real talent and the real ability to connect, but more importantly, to evolve yeah. whatever art form it is, have that ability to do so. You could also make the argument that if you are going to be one of those people, that you'll do it no matter what. Right. Well, and I, I uh, it's again, age brings um, sometimes wisdom. <laughs> and uh, I've realized that there are pendulums, the, the pendulum swings. The 50s and to some extent the 60s are generally regarded as a low point in film because you had the studios pres- producing big spectacle over, over sustenance. Hmm. 70s are largely regarded as the grandest era of film because of like all those films I mentioned earlier that are just like known as some of the best films of all time and some of the best directors of all time. Hmm. I was watching an interview, uh, I think it was on the Joe Rogan podcast with Ed Norton Hmm. and Rogan asked him, why don't they make films like that anymore? And there's, there's some, you know, economical reasons why the business has evolved, things have changed, internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said something that was so profound to me and he said, because it's hard. Hmm. He's like, that era, for whatever the reason, born some of the greatest directors of all time. Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, Brian De Palma. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The best filmmakers of all time happen to be born around the same time. Luck or predestination, who knows? Hmm. He said, it's not like people aren't trying. It's just hard. <laughs> it's hard to do. Hmm. Even if all, you know, even if the stars align, even if the studio is supporting you, even if what, etc., even if the audience is ready for it, it's just, it's hard to do. But while we may never see the 70s again, we got the 90s, which were fantastic. And I just watched a video the other day that talked about how 27, was it 2017? I think it was 2017. Or, two, no, sorry, 2007. This, this, this video that I was watching was making the argument that it might have been the best era in film 2007 yeah huh. and he started listing all these movies that I had forgotten had come out this time I think mm. No Country for Old Men uh, There Will Be Blood I mean there was a series of movies I was like oh my god those were all fantastic yeah and I had just forgotten about them and mm. that, it, it, it's because sometimes recency bias can work against itself right all right I think again as a fan this is what I'm hopeful for wrestling is very much the same because there are so many opportunities and because there are far more people in the industry than ever, if you like a specific kind of wrestling, you might find it hard to find that specific thing only. But innovation can thrive. Hmm. New, new forms of storytelling can thrive. Bad forms of storytelling can thrive too, but you can, you can parse out what you like because there's a lot of opportunity there. Right. And I think that that's that should hopefully, if you're a person who's not feeling it, 
not fitting a current era or what have you, or you think wrestling is this, or you, you miss the territory days or what have you, it, it should be gratifying to know that time shifts. And if you liked something, it'll probably come back in vogue at some point. You know, mm. we were talking before we started recording of um, FTR versus the Briscoes, which mm. you've not seen yet. Right. Um, three phenomenal matches. I've seen two of them. I haven't seen the dog collar match yet. But phenomenal matches. Beautiful. Old school, hard hitting pro wrestling. Mm. If that's what you love, it's there. Right. It's there for you to watch. Yeah, yeah. If well, you, I suppose that's the beauty of living in the technological age that we live in right now, mm-hmm. whatever you like. If you like old, you know, WCW from the 80s and 90s, it's right there. You can watch it. And I do. Paramount Plus. Right. It's fantastic. Sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, if I, if I just have a, a, a hankering to go back and even just see if I still like it in the same way. Yeah. You know, and, and, and what I find largely is that I do. Mm. I still think Rick Rude is one of the greatest heels of all time. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with you, yeah. He, I, I, I remember uh, being from Corpus Christi, Texas. They would go through the circuit and they'd perform at the Coliseum, which was really like an ice rink, a small <laughs> ice rink. Yeah. But ironically, it was named the Coliseum. And, re- and one time, Dad bought me floor seats. So I don't remember how far back I'm sitting, but like I'm like five or six rows back. This is... This is Christmas for me, man. Like, I'd seen, you know, the way that it's like, a, if you think of like a small basketball auditorium, they've got like the seats on the risers and then they got the floor. And I'm at the floor and this is like never happened before. We didn't grow up with a lot of money. So like, this is like a big thing. And, uh, you know, Rick Rude does his opening. He does his, his, his calls everyone fat sweat hogs from whatever. <laughs> and he does start doing his gyration and he spits. <laughs> and the fucker nearly hit me. It landed right at my foot and that made me love pro wrestling really yeah because because I was so close to it and so I go back now as a grown man I watch him I'm like oh yeah this was amazing Hmm. oh yeah Kurt Henning was amazing oh yeah Sting like Sting in the 80s was great Hmm. he was the perfect good guy you know, he had the fancy look, and he was very athletic. And I forgot how many matches Sting won with like a off the middle rope crossbody, <laughs> but apparently a lot, <laughs> including like beating Vader with that sometimes. Um, you're right; it's all there, and and it all makes a tapestry of great wrestling. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's gonna be very interesting to see how it evolves in the future, right? You know what comes next. You know, you certainly never would have thought and. 10 years ago that the wrestling world would look like it does today right no way I don't know that I could figure out any part of the world that looks that, that is that's as it is today too. 10 years ago that's true 10 years too, ago right? when we met like just think about that we've known mm. each other for almost exactly 10 years yeah when you when you and I met could we possibly imagine the, the state of the world good or bad now no I mean you could have suggested it but you just would have sounded like science fiction right to the yeah. pandemic and the whole stuff with all the vaccinations and everything else the as tribalism well. all the changes in terms of uh, nutrition yeah. and that sort of stuff that we've learnt over the last however long well haven't learnt yeah, <laughs> over the sometimes. last 10 years right I was talking to my mum this morning she's over visiting and uh, 
she was asking because uh, I didn't have any regular milk I only had oat milk and she said is there any bad stuff in there <laughs> 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 so we're consciously aware now that everything that we eat there might be some bad stuff in there whether it's you know whether you're you're on the meat side or the vegan side or somewhere in between or whatever it is you happen to believe and I said to her and I think I can stand on this sleep is good yeah Smoking is bad. Water's good, mostly. Mostly, yeah. yeah. Some water is good. Hydration is good. Let's let's say that. Hydration is good. Um, And I think that's it, isn't it? You probably should eat something. Yeah, yeah, you should eat something, right. But but we all know you need some sleep. We all know that that smoking is more than likely going to give you cancer. Exercise. Exercise, that's the thing. Yeah. Exercise is good for you. And that's yeah. it really, isn't it? Is right. there anything else that is well, undeniable? People say that um, meat is bad for you from a health standpoint. It's undeniable. But even that's up for debate, isn't it? Look, I'm, a lot of epidemiological studies yeah, and look, stuff. I'm, yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm I lean towards, I'm on the vegan side. I'm yeah. a plant eater and I don't eat meat. And I have a variety of reasons for that. But even I couldn't, I wouldn't feel confident saying objectively that meat is bad, period. Mm. Meat, I would I would suggest that meat um, in in abundance is bad. Um, certainly in in gluttony is terrible. But I, you know, I, I've also gained like twenty pounds in the last couple of years <laughs> eating vegan food, so it can also be bad. Yeah, you know, I'm also on a, a, a cholesterol medicine, so you, you can. Are. Yeah, and, and vegan food generally doesn't have cholesterol, but you know what does have oil, and a lot of oil is used uh. in vegan food. So even though cholesterol only naturally appears in animal products it also appears in oils or at least can be formed in oils I'm, I'm not a scientist so well, again that to, to the original point there's so much debate on the fact right because yeah. it's a common perception it has been for the longest time that if you eat cholesterol it will raise your cholesterol in your blood right. but some people now are discounting that and and I, I uh, I'll go back to one of my brother-in-laws um, is a former rugby player in Australia and mm. he's now a, uh, a at least he was doing physical training I think he works like in management now but we my wife and I decided we were going to get in shape before we hit a, a string of illness over the last over December I got yeah. the flu I got COVID I got a gastro bug like every other week so I haven't been to the gym in like a week or a month but we were going back to the gym and so we asked she asked him she's like well you know do you have any suggestions for diet or workout and he's like it's all confirmation bias Hmm. he's like if you want to believe that eating meat is healthy then you'll find an article that says eating meat is healthy if you want to find an article that says uh, eating plants is healthy you'll find an article that says eating plants is healthy if you want to find the opposite you'll Hmm. find that if you want to believe oil is good seeds are good or it there are unfortunately a variety of opinions and those opinions present themselves as fact right um and and oftentimes are presented with a lot of passion yeah and so it's too alluring and it's too easy to find whatever validates your predisposed opinion hmm. i think that is true for nutrition and i know that's true for entertainment and it's yeah. very hard, like, again, to, to think back 10 years ago, I don't know that I would have thought 10 years ago that it's so hard to find the truth. So hard to find the truth. Hmm. You know, um, 
and and the more divided we've become as a society, the more likely it is to find it difficult to find the, uh, any sort of objectivity in much of anything because everyone has a side that they believe in. Right. You know? Right. Except, as I said, except exercise, smoking. Oh, uh, even exercise. I think there's really? some... Well, I... I've look, never found anybody saying exercise bad. Not rational people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there are people out there. I bet you there's some subreddit or some uh, uh, Twitter feed or whatever, fucking Mastodon or Discord or whatever yeah. social media okay. filled with people sure. who, will, who will stand on their soapbox and tell you that exercise is bad. Uh, there are probably some. There's probably a fringe amount of people who believe that sleeping is bad, and they probably just stay up all the time until they die eleven days later. But yes, extremist aside, uh-huh. I think we're right. We can generally agree that that getting proper sleep is important. That getting proper nutrition is important. However, you define that. Staying hydrated is important. Yeah. What Going, is proper nutrition though? That's well, the that's, where, that's, 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 that's where that's when it goes in. That's when it splinters. We, we, we struggle there. We struggle. But we know we know whatever that term is. It's like it's like asking someone if they believe in God. Well, how do you define it? Mm. You know, like what's nutrition? How do you define it? Is it plant? Is it meat? Is it is it uh, uh, carbs? Is it not carbs? Is it sugar? Is it not sugar? You know, we stopped. We bought a bread maker over Christmas because. Um, the bread in America is so sugary to my wife who's from Australia where they don't put sugar in their everything. Yeah. So finally, we just like, well, let's buy a bread maker. We'll make our own right. damn bread. And we have been. So, oh, nice. you know, it, but it all just goes to the point that like there is a sort of scattershot of opinions everywhere. Yeah. That it's it's too easy. It's it's like a drug to just lock yourself into. I only listen to this person's opinion, or I only listen to this person's opinion, or I only read this article that presents the facts you in this manner. You think that's too easy? Oh, I feel yeah. the opposite. I feel that's my problem. Is that I listen to everyone's opinion. My girlfriend's always saying it's exhausting dating me because in three months I'll feel the exact opposite. One, you know, I'll read a bit. I'll read the Carnivore Code, then I'll read Dr. Gregor's book about that, and then I'll do that, and then I'll go back and forth what each else can, what else can you do suggest- well that's it what can you do I think that's the Ultimately, only thing you can you're only on this earth for what is it four score years and whatever and though that being the case all this trying to figure things out it's exhausting you don't you know back to the original point about being around kids they're not worried about it they no. just eat it they just experiment yeah they just live and, and that's it you just you just. I just said the other night you know I'm going to be 50 years old one day not too far from now and if I haven't figured it out by now I'm not going to well know. I'll tell you something I there was a years ago Matthew McConaughey won a, a Academy Award mm. I think for Dallas Buyers Club and he gave a speech and it was kind of pushed back upon, but I think people missed the, the, the point of it. But he says, um, and I'm going to paraphrase it all, but he, he essentially says, someone asked me when I was 20 years old who my hero was. And I said, hmm, let me think about that. And so the next day that same person comes back and he said, hey, did you figure out who your hero is? And he says, yes, it's me in five years. The person I want to be in five years, that's my hero. Mm. Five years pass, that same person comes back and says, are you, the, are you the person that you thought you were? Are you your hero? And Matthew McConaughey said, absolutely not. Nowhere close. But the person I'm going to be in 10 years, that's going to be my hero. That's my hero. That's who I'm striving to be. 10 years pass, so on and so forth. I think we're always moved that goalpost. And we should. 
And we should be experimenting. We should try to remove ourselves from dogmatic belief that this is preferable of this or there's a moralistic certainty that this way of living is better than that way of living mm. because we don't know. And it is alluring. I think what you're doing is more difficult. It might be in your nature, which is probably why we're friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it might be difficult for everyone around you. <laughs> <laughs> but but the fact of the matter is, what other what other ways there live other than to experiment and try it all and see what works and what doesn't work? And what I have found is that when I do that, I, I like certain things from this and I like certain things from that. And that person has a good point and that person has a good point. And they may have differencing ideologies, but they might have specific points that I agree with that I find offer me something. But it feels exhausting to me. That's the problem. It feels exhausting to constantly be trying to figure things out. That part of your brain that's trying to, you know, solve the problem about what's the best thing to eat, how can I live as healthy as possible and live as long as possible and be as happy and content and as peace as possible. In trying to find out all that information, you spend your whole life trying to find out that information well, rather than ever getting to I that think, goal. I think if I may suggest hmm. you're asking too many conflicting questions and you're trying to find one solution mm. you asked how does one live healthy how does one live long how does one live well how does one live happy and those and amongst other questions and those four things may not have the same answer really yeah because there was some millionaire, I forget, he owned some app and sold it and he was doing this whole thing where he was trying to be as healthy as possible yeah. and his life sounded miserable <laughs> so i it might be healthy and it might be he might he might live longer yeah but does he live well right does he you know like i, I look you know you you've seen the evolution of me right when yeah. we met i was in not great shape then i got in incredibly crazy shape and told me i was going to burn out and i did and then i last 2 years i haven't given much of a shit about working out and i just got in the belly cuz i decided for the last 2 years that food was going to make me happy right. more than exercise. So of those different segments of your life, it's probably hard to be absolutely clear, but would you say any of them are more... I, I, I hesitate to use the word pleasurable, but the overall sensation of being <laughs> during any of those individual portions of your life yeah. for the rest of your life which of those would you choose? None. Oh. I'll tell you why because the only thing that has been consistent, consistently pleasurable in my life is an orgasm. Everything else is subject to change. Really? Yeah. Because the, when I was working out five, six days a week, when I was, this is for, I think I've probably talked about this on the podcast, but for those who don't know, like I was going to jujitsu like three to four, five times a week. I was working out every morning for an hour at 6 a.m. Right. doing Olympic lifting. Then on the weekend, on, on my Saturday was an hour and a half of jujitsu, an hour of exercising. I usually jump straight into an hour of kickboxing. Then I'd go home and take a two hour break, which I ate and took a nap. And then I'd go back for wrestling private, uh, amateur wrestling yeah. and then on Sundays we'd go surfing and I was extremely happy in some oh. regards at that time okay and then I got older and I changed and my priorities changed and so 
it's not about finding this like this 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 chalice this uh, you know it's it's the holy grail of of lifestyles and sticking with that and be like this is the one that's only good if you're trying to sell a book yeah. if you're trying to live well you have to adapt to your changes I could not at 42 sustain that level of working out, even if I could get back to that level of health. My job is completely different. At the time that we were doing that, I was working in-house at a production company with a Monday through Friday schedule. Now I'm about to go to New York for four months. And so how am I supposed to maintain any kind of long-term jujitsu training in that regard? Now I train for fun. You and me will roll in the back or Chris or someone. So um, I think... The answer kind of goes back to what we started with, which is you stay in the present. You stay in the moment. And what is you in the moment? Like, and it's a fine line because you don't want to give into indulgence or laziness. That's yeah. very easy. Yeah, yeah. But also at the same time, you don't want to stay strictly dogmatic about one lifestyle decision you made. You know, I yeah. started, I first became vegan when I was 19. Mm. And by the time I was 27 or 28, I went back to eating meat for six years. Mm. And then I met our friend Dan and I went back to being vegan and I'm still vegan now. And I decided mm. that I'm very happy being vegan now. But I needed to change during that period of time and I needed to come back to that realization or maybe never come back to it. Right. right. You know? Um, so every orgasm you've ever had was pleasurable? I could probably think of a handful of times. Maybe You're right. I could definitely <laughs> think of one example where it wasn't. But for the most part, that's about as consistent as it gets in my life. Everything else is all subject to change. Okay. Plans change, as they say in the wrestling world. Yeah. Um, and, and I try to just ride. I try to ride that wave with it. I try to say, mm. who am I today? Every day I have a chance to be different. Is Am I the person who's going to wake up today and smoke a bowl the first thing in the morning? Not often, yeah. but occasionally. Right. Am I a person who's going to go walk uh, two miles to the gym and go do an hour workout and walk two, uh, two miles back? Do you, but there are, do you think there are people, though, that figured it out, that truly are at peace? The Dalai Lama or people like that who meditate a whole lot. Do you think they're more at peace and comfortable and have a more pleasurable life? Well, you, again, you're asking a lot of questions yeah. that might not have the same answer. Yeah. Do I think that someone like the Dalai Lama is more content in life? Probably. Because I think that they've come to the point that your app is trying to get you to. Yeah. Which is to understand that we're all one. We, whether, however, in my, the way I define it is, we're all part of one divine entity. Yeah. God to me is everything and everyone. Mm. It's not a guy in the clouds. It's it is all of us. It's you, me. Yeah. You and I are the same. I w- I use this analogy. Imagine an aluminum can factory, and they get a shipment of aluminum, one big giant block of aluminum. Okay, I don't know what aluminum comes in, but let's just pretend that's God. Then they take this aluminum and they break off pieces of it and they melt it down and then they form a bunch of Coke cans. But those Coke cans are still part of that original. They're just reshaped. Yeah. But they're no different. They're still part of it. Right. And then those Coke cans go into circulation and they get drank and then they get tossed in the recycling and then in that recycling you get a whole bunch of Pepsi and Coca-Cola cans and you throw it back in the melting pot and you remelt it down and you form new cans. Right. And they all are part of each other but they're all part of that same source. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter how many different times you remake cans, they're all part of a central 
life. Yeah. And that's... I get that. I understand that for sure. Broadly speaking, that's like very close to what someone like a Dalai Lama might have. And so from that perspective, I would say they probably found contentment. Now, does that make their life easier? Certainly not. I mean, look at Gandhi. I wouldn't say his life was easy. You know? Um, uh, Tibet is not recognized by China. So I don't think it makes your life easier. I do think, though, that there comes a time when you let go of the pursuit and you accept the understanding and you can be an observer and a contributor without feeling like you're hunting something that's unobtainable. Yeah, maybe you're right. A lot of people say you get that through sort of brushes with death, don't they, right? You realise you're sort of forced to contemplate your mortality. I mean, they always say that, don't you? If you like nearly die one time, it makes you reevaluate and appreciate everything. It's a cliche, obviously, you know. Well, our friend Jason nearly died, you know. Um, and I was talking to him real recently about it, and um, he said a lot of stuff doesn't bother him anymore. Yeah. That's his big combo. I asked him, did you see a go- Did you see a bright light? Did you have it? And he just like, stuff doesn't matter. That right. used to matter to him. Yeah. Because he nearly died. He was in a coma for two weeks. He just barely, at the end of the summer, got his ability to walk again. Like, wow. Does he have ambition still or not? He's trying to figure out what his next step is. Yeah. But I don't think he's as concerned with everything else like he used to be. Right. Things that would have probably irritated him, frustrated him. And I don't want to speak for him, but I feel like those are things that are just like, yeah, I see it. I comment on it. I, whatever. So that's mm-hmm. not really important. You know, it's like if someone cuts you off in driving, you can get mad or you can just acknowledge it and move on. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, I've always heard this when it comes to meditation, this idea that like, if you want to empty your mind, you don't block everything out. You let it pass like a cloud or yeah. like a car passing. Right. We see car passing all the time. We acknowledge it. We don't even think about it. It's so automatic right and I think in a strong meditative practice that it's a very similar situation where thoughts come and they go and you acknowledge them and you release them and I I wonder I suspect and I think that I would even go so far as to believe that that's the secret you're looking for it's letting go Hmm. it's letting go and be able to say say it was a bad day yeah sucked right say it was a great day that was great yeah like frozen I haven't seen Frozen. Let it go. Well, oh yeah, the song. I do know the song. That's exactly it, you know? Yeah. And I think that if we can ever, if we ever can get to that place, how much more could we enjoy life? Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely something to that. Well, Nigel, thank you very much. I think that we, I really appreciate you, you taking the time to explain what wrestling is. I think you're not wrong that if more people understood it how challenging and difficult it is Mm. that it is the highest art of it can be it has the potential to Mm. be the highest form of drama because unlike theater which Mm. is live or unlike movies which is spectacle yeah unlike rock performance which is interactive it's all those things and Again, I guess it's different these days. A lot of people pre-plan, but for the most part, traditionally, hmm. it was very adaptable. It was very like I I, I listened to uh, 
some older historian podcast and um you know they'll talk about how like the booker would be like you're going over make them look good and that's the instruction yeah and and i hear that as a layman and i'm like I wouldn't even I, I can't wrap my head around how I would do that <laughs> like I can't wrap around my head like how you, I, I know how you do it but I can't yeah. I still can't figure it out like you know what I'm saying there's like so much trust and, and technicalness and creativity mm. and imagination and and, and and you're doing it live and experience you well know, sure once you've done something enough then it's, it sort of becomes second nature yeah you got your your little parts of the story that you tell and you, you plug everything else into it, you know, and that's part of the art form and telling that story. So I'm not sure, to your point, I've done a very good job of explaining <laughs> exactly what pro wrestling is. Um, I think maybe to your point, it's probably uh, better explained in that little segment of the movie, you know. I, I think it's better experienced. Yeah. And, and, and hopefully, um, for anyone who's not already a pro wrestling fan, or even if you are, um, you'll take time to go experience it with an open mind and an open heart and you'll really take stock of how you feel how it makes you feel who you root for who you don't root for go into it blind yeah and and really watch it and take it in and you it doesn't matter that they're, you're not really killing each other uh, although maybe in modern day you, really, you are in, a, in, a, in its own way but like it, that's not important what's important is are you drawn in yeah there'll be someone you connect with yeah and I think if, you, if, if someone can do that at very minimum they should appreciate the hell out of what you do because I think what you do is a skill set that the average person would break down if they try and we see it all the time mm. people come from other sports and they try it and some succeed and some don't right different backgrounds different uh, traditions different stylistic or, or philosophical beliefs on what pro wrestling is yeah but the fact of the matter is if you get it you'll get over you'll be popular you'll be you'll be you'll grab that attention and if you don't then then you probably won't and you know just like with acting you've got you've got fantastic actors like a a Meryl Streep right a Robert De Niro and then you have some actors on the other end of the spectrum who maybe are not those people you know yeah um but the appreciation of the art and and what goes into it is something that I really wanted to examine I do think at very minimum you've placed the seed of intrigue hmm. to check it out for oneself yeah good and to see if it is something that compels them in the same way that it does us yeah 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 definitely uh, it's not going to be for everybody but I guarantee you there'll be people who haven't seen it that on closer inspection they might like it so I just want to I'm going to put you on the spot uh -oh. I just want you to share with me and it can be it can be serious it can be funny it can be sad it can be inspiring on the spot gun to your head what was your favorite what is or was your favorite moment in your career favorite moment in my career wow let me have a think about that to make sure I don't answer it shortly <clears throat> I always used to tell people I used to enjoy moments after the matches you know certainly in the early parts of my career sort of in a car with a few of the boys driving to the next town just 
letting your um, thoughts condense with your breath. Often those sort of quiet moments, meditative moments, are ones which are really enjoyable for me. Um, there was one moment, it's funny, I was watching uh, some of the old stuff back and uh, wrestling dragon a few times and oftentimes a lot of stuff you're wrestling someone for 30 minutes mm -hmm. you can't plan everything <laughs> you know right. what I mean it's yeah. just impossible and uh, so a lot of stuff's done off a of feel etc etc and that gives you the opportunity to ad-lib more and at the same time communicate more as well and there was one moment in one of those matches I can't remember for the life of me what it was but it was a moment where I think he got me in a submission and the crowd just whoa, and says there's a, a, a visceral connection with the crowd that's just and you've never done this before in the sense of if you're a musician you've played this song before mm -hmm. so in this part of the song you might remember this is but with wrestling certainly back the way we were wrestling you never had the same match twice you were constantly doing something different so you when you experienced that reaction from the crowd it was magical because you didn't know it was coming right. but there was a moment where they just came up through that din of reaction from the crowd, I heard him whisper in my ear, now we've got him. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, yeah, that was a real moment. I don't know of another moment to go out on other than that. I think that actually explains and conveys the magic that is pro wrestling. So Nigel McGuinness, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And thank you so much for being one of my closest and dearest friends over the last decade. You've been with me through some highs and lows, and, and I, I like to believe I've, I've been there with you as well. Absolutely. And, um, I, I very much cherish our friendship. So thank you for everything that you are and everything that you will be and your insights because they're very greatly appreciated. Oh, likewise, mate. If there wasn't a table between us, I'd give you a hug. Well, we'll do it after. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Have a great day. All right, mate. I want to thank Nigel once again for coming on the podcast and offering his perspective and his insights on what is and is not professional wrestling. At the end of the day, it's all storytelling, and I love storytelling, whether it's in a musical form or it's in movies or it's in professional wrestling, novels, poetry, paintings, etc. It doesn't matter. The art of storytelling as, as embedded in human nature, as breathing and community and aspiring for something greater. The physical toll that these wrestlers put on their body, the mental uh, attributes that, that goes into the psychology of getting a crowd to, to react in the manner that you want them to, the, the creative nature of putting together something on the fly oftentimes, ad-libbing it, um, improving it, and doing it in such a way that is believable and suspends disbelief, that is a hard, hard ask, and yet there are men and women who do it all across the world, some on the biggest stages and some on the smallest. Their contribution is equally important. Without their sacrifice, we don't have this amazing art form, and hopefully one day it will be appreciated as much as I do. I also wanted to reiterate that Nigel McGuinness has a fantastic documentary called The Last of McGuinness. If you can find it, find it. It's great. 
the the heart, soul, and and the true human story behind his his uh, documentary is is uh, it's top notch, second to none, and I don't think that you're gonna get that kind of behind the curtain look at what the life of a professional wrestler really is in any other medium. And that includes Darren Aronofsky's The Wrestler. So thank you all once again. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast and to listen to us wax poetic about professional wrestling because it is something that we're both passionate about. And I hope that it opens your mind and opens your heart to maybe checking it out and seeing if it's as entertaining and engaging and, you know, um, moving to you as it is to us. And even if it's not your cup of tea, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast all the same. Your attention is respected and it is admired and it is very much appreciated. So thank you all so much. Um, I know the weather around the country is not so great, I, perhaps around the world. So be safe out there. Take care of each other. We're in a new year, new you. Let's let's take the time to do it right and uh, show love and compassion and understanding and open mindedness to the world around us and those within it. Because at the end of the day, all we have is each other. Thank you all very much. Love you all. Thank you for listening. And until uh, next time, gold rings on you all.